Welcome to City Harvest Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by the preaching of the Word by Dr. A.R. Bernard. The last session we had here, we were able to dig deep into some of the history amongst the Jewish people which led to the history of the Christian church because we hold to a Judeo-Christian faith and take a look at culture and our relationship with culture. H. Richard Niebuhr wrote the book that is usually referred to in seminary training. It's called Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. And Niebuhr looks at five relationships that the church and Jesus has with culture, with society. And let me say that culture is, yes, the integrated system of beliefs, traditions, customs, ideas, values, products, technologies that constitute the life of a people group, but essentially culture is man's attempt to organize his society and to determine the best ways to live in it. The reason why we have conflict is because people have different ideas on how society should be organized and what are the best ways to live in that society. It is true in America right now because we have a deep divide in our country over politics, over social issues, ethnic issues, racial issues, and it's because people have different notions and different ideas. When confronted by some of the religious leaders in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, they asked Jesus about divorce. And Jesus said basically that divorce was never supposed to be an option, that a man and a woman came together for the rest of their lives in the context of, divorce, in the context of marriage. So they asked, well, why did Moses give a writing of divorcement, if that's true? And Jesus responded by simply saying that Moses gave a writing of divorcement or allowed divorce as a concession because of the hardness of your heart. Social conditions, broken, brokenness, human woundedness can quite often lead to going in directions other than what God determined is best. That's the reality of life. But the way Jesus worded it was important. He said, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. But notice his point of reference in the beginning. In the book of Job, God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job, and he says, who is this that darkens counsel without wisdom? Because Job and his friends were trying to explain Job's situation and circumstances. But God says something so beautifully in Job. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world, of the earth? when the morning stars sang out in praise of the wisdom and power of God. 
Well, God not only laid the foundation for the physical universe, but he also laid the foundation for the social universe. So before man came up with his own ideas, God had already established foundational principles, patterns, and precepts to govern how society should be arranged and the best way to live in it. It was manifested in detail when he gave Moses the law. And in the law of Moses, God worked and sent specifics on what that arrangement should look like and how we should live within society. Much of that has continued over time in civilization, from one civilization to another, and along the way, especially in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, we are making some very profound and serious alterations to God's original plan for family, for societal structure, for all of those things. But one of the things I want to share with you, recap from the first service tonight, is the three sectors that society is divided into and how that plays out. And then I want to build on top of that some new insights that I did not share in the last service. So, we are all missionaries in some way. We're all missionaries in that we all have a mission, a calling, a purpose, a function, a role in society and in the kingdom of God. We all have a purpose. We all have a mission. We have also been equipped by God, designed by God, with certain gifts, talents, abilities that fit us for the role, for the function, for the mission that God has called us to. So what God has called you to do, he has fitted you to do. He has designed you in such a way that you are just right for what he's called you to do. It is easier to identify our gift, talents, and abilities than it is to identify our calling. Because our purpose is not something we decide, it's something we discover. God decides your purpose. And that's why he wired you and gifted you in a way that you could fulfill your purpose. So we all have gifts, talents, and abilities given to us by God. We all have a mission, a call, a purpose, a role, a function in human society and in the kingdom of God. We also are called to a mission field. Our mission field is that place where we apply our gift, talents, and abilities and live out our mission, our calling, our role, and our function. 
Society is divided into three sectors, and I want to review this and then build on it. The first sector is government. Government. The second sector is not for or non-profit. The next sector is for profit. And essentially, society is divided into these three sectors. All of the social institutions within society fit in one of these categories. Sometimes it may share two categories. But essentially, society is set up in three sectors. There are three different motivations for each sector. Government is established for public service. That is the motive. These are three mission fields. So when you think about your gift, talents, and abilities, when you think about your calling, when you think about where you will apply those gift, talents, and abilities, when you think about the role and function that you play in society, you're really thinking about one of these three sectors. It is in one of these three sectors that you will apply your gifts, talents, and abilities, and live out your mission. It is one of these three sectors that is your mission field. The motivation to get involved in government is public service. The motivation to get involved in the not-for-profit sector is humanitarianism. The motivation to get involved in the for-profit section is profit. That's the bottom line. You want to make money? You don't go into business to lose money. Even if you have a lot of money. Unless you are no, I won't go there. <laughs> quack, quack, right? So the motivation in government is public service. So you have to ask yourself, is my mission field, is my call to public service? in some governmental institution, structure, department, division, whatever it is. And we're going to talk about the purpose of government. Is my call to humanitarianism?
Is this my mission field? Is this what I'm passionate about? Is this what I'm gifted to do? Is this what I'm attracted to? Is my wiring for the profit sector? And I say wiring because you have to be wired for public service. You have to be wired for business. You have to be wired for humanitarianism. But the reality is that these three sectors represent the three mission fields that you will enter and live out your purpose and also apply your gift, talents, and abilities. So let's talk about government because every person from the moment of conception has dignity and should experience a life, a quality of life consistent with that dignity. We form government for several reasons, but we form it out of the respect for human life. The sacredness of human life is the purpose for government. So let's look at what government does. Number one, the function of government is to legislate and enforce law. Purpose of government is to arbitrate conflicts. Whether those conflicts are between two people, two communities, two organizations, two institutions, it doesn't matter. Government's role is to arbitrate conflicts that will emerge through the inevitable friction of human relationships. Number three, government's role is to protect human life. Human life is sacred. After the flood, God spoke to Noah, and he said, he said to Noah, whoever takes another man's life must be held accountable for the taking of that life because every human bears the image of God. So God established human government to protect and respect his image in all human beings. Human life is sacred, and therefore it must be protected. Number four, government exists to promote the common good. The good of the society at large is the responsibility of government. Now that means creating social institutions, military, uh, I mean everything that government does, creating laws, legislation, policies, etc. But always, always government should have the common good in mind. So, 
the person who is called to serve God in public service in government, it's because you feel the call of God to promote the quality of life of the citizens in the society in which you live. And you feel that God has called you to participate in some way with government in public service for the common good. That's your passion. Now, I will tell you, you have to be fitted for that because politics is power. Who has it? How did they get it? How are they using it? Should they keep it? Politics is power, and it's about navigating the power systems and power structures. And everyone in power does not necessarily share the same values that we have as a Christian. So there are individuals who can go into public service for their own purposes, for their own good, for their own ambitions, but not for the common good. But what should motivate the Christian to enter the field of public service is because they have a passion for the common good. Amen? So you, you may become, you, you may go into law, you may go into city planning, engineering, development, architecture, education, no matter where it is that you have your gifting, all right, you have to decide, am I going to submit my gift because God has called me to public service? So let's look at, at, at humanitarianism because those who feel the call to humanitarianism essentially are individuals that you have an and I want to put this down, an active, an active belief in the value of human life. And notice active belief. Why I underline that is because for you who are called to humanitarianism, it's not enough for you to stand by and talk about what's wrong. You feel compelled by the Spirit of God to do something about it. So it's not just a belief in the value of human life, it's an active belief. It's something inside of you that is activated when you see human need. Whether that human need is because of natural disasters such as a hurricane or an earthquake, whether that human need comes because of poverty, because of imbalances in government and, 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 and equity within the society, because of marginalization, disenfranchisement, all right? Whatever it may be, discrimination, etc. you have this passion for justice, fairness, and equity. And you can't just watch it on television and say, oh, that's terrible. You start thinking, what can I do to respond. You get stirred by the mission field, going into other countries, going into places that are devastated after some terrible storm or occurrence or bombing or whatever. 
You have that passion because you have a love for people. Amen? I know because I'm an introvert. You know what an introvert is, right? I'm an introvert who loves people. I'll let you go figure that one out. The person who is motivated by humanitarianism, they feel that they are their brother's keeper, that they have a moral responsibility to respond to needs. You just feel it. See? And it's interesting how this works because these work together. Because you may have this deep passion and need to respond to other people's need. And usually, the person who is in the for-profit sector doesn't want to go, but they'll pay for you to go. <laughs> you have this sense of responsibility for the spiritual, moral, and material welfare of those in society. This is your passion. This is what stirs you. And as I said, it's an active belief in the value of human life. You believe in work. You believe in the dignity of work, the dignity of workers. You believe in that the most vulnerable in society should be taken care of. You believe that there is a responsibility in society as a whole for those who are most vulnerable and the least, what Jesus called the least in society. This is, this is what drives you and motivates you. And as I said in the, in the last meeting, this is an idea, this active belief in the value of human life, it's an idea that is shared in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam, in Confucianism, in Buddhism, in Taoism, it doesn't matter. There's the same idea that we are our brother's keeper. And that's why humanitarians can get together regardless of differences in beliefs and religions and ethnicities and race and status. All of those things are put aside because they are driven by one thing, and that is the, come on, common good. The greatest expression of a love and passion for the common good is when Jesus hung on that cross for the sins of all humanity. Come on. Isn't it true? That's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was the ultimate expression of this vision of this movement. The for-profit sector is easy, it's for profit, it's the marketplace. The world of business, commerce, where the exchange of goods and services takes place, where the creativity of God is expressed. How many believe that God is creative? Take a look around you, take a look at the world around you. Creativity, innovation, inspiration, Revelation, all of those things inspire people to come up with ideas that have value in the marketplace. 
to come up with goods and services, products that have value in the marketplace. This is what excites them, and they want to make money. It is where the creativity of God is expressed, motivated by profit. In each of these, it requires creativity, but especially in for-profit, because you've got to pay the bills at the end of the day. It includes media, it includes arts and entertainment. Also in the for-profit sector or the marketplace, which really is, encompasses all of this, it is the place where ideas and values and philosophies of life are recognized and even marketed to society at large. I was sharing that there's a great book by a guy named Brian Godawa called uh, Hollywood Worldviews. And what he does is examine worldviews and the influence of worldviews through movies and films. Every movie, every film that you see has a worldview behind it. It has a message, a subtle message that it's trying to get across to you. There is surface culture and there's deep culture. Surface culture is the artifacts, the social institutions that you see and experience, the museums, the educational facilities, everything else. But deep culture is the ideologies, the worldviews, the philosophies, the values that drive surface culture. So if you want to understand the manifestations of culture in surface culture, you've got to dig deep. You've got to go down to deep culture and you say, ah, this is why they do what they do. This is why they believe the way they believe, practice what they practice. This is why they have certain uh, traditions and values because of the worldview that's at the deep culture level. It is the marketing of opinions and ideas that go in for date, debate. This is where we experience the stewardship of wealth. The for-profit sector is a stewardship responsibility. It is the stewardship of wealth. As Christians, we understand that the for-profit sector is okay. It's okay for a Christian to be wealthy we need Christian millionaires. We need Christian billionaires. And I use the word Christian to talk about the values that will influence the use of their wealth. We need wealth that is influenced by Christian values, wealth that has a moral compass. Because wealth is neutral. It tends to take on the character of those who possess it. So if immoral people possess it, it will be used for immoral purposes. If moral people possess it, it will be used for moral purposes. So the for-profit sector is really about the stewardship of wealth. And we know as Christians that the for-profit sector is not just for personal enrichment, But there is also a responsibility to the common good. Notice, whether it's government, 
not-for-profit or for-profit, at the end of the day, it's all about what? The common good. We are our brother's keeper. As I shared, yeah, come on, let's give God a good hand, clap off me. Yeah. So when Jesus spoke to a wealthy man who had so much uh, crops, so many crops, that he didn't have room for them. So he said, I will build bigger barns to put the surplus in. And Jesus said in that story, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Then what's going to happen to all of your crops? What's going to happen to all of your wealth? Well, his sin was not that he accumulated wealth. That's okay. His sin was he didn't share that wealth. He did not take on the responsibility for the common good. So God wants you to be blessed. God wants you to experience prosperity. God has no problem. There are Christian billionaires. There are Christian millionaires in this world, right? But he wants us to remember that our our Christian value and our Christian ethics, we have a responsibility to the common good. So when I was in uh, Taipei before I came here, and I was talking a little bit about some of this to uh, uh, Pastor Abraham Koo, uh, New Life Church, all right, I looked up all of the wealthy people in Taiwan. And what was interesting as I went down the list, they all took a portion of their wealth and either formed a not-for-profit corporation or they gave to humanitarian works. So whether it's a Bill and Melinda Gates, whether it's a Michael Bloomberg, who I know personally, and his Bloomberg Philanthropies, uh, giving out money and distributing money, all right? When you understand your true role, and I'm talking to Christians here, amen? Right? This is our, our Christian framework. The rest of the world is different, okay? We understand that wealth, God blesses us. He gives us the power to get wealth, Deuteronomy 8.18. Amen? Amen. To establish his covenant in the earth, all right? And part of that covenant is the responsibility for the common good. That's part of the covenant. In the Old Testament, at harvest time, there was what is called the law of the gleanings. That law simply said that whatever fruit at harvest time fell from the tree to the ground, whoever owned that field could not harvest that fruit that fell to the ground. That fruit was to be left there to feed the poor. So at that time, the poor were allowed to come in and the perimeter of every field, all right, whatever fruit was on the ground, the poor had access to it to take it, to feed themselves. And in that way, God set up a system to look out for the vulnerable in the society, the least and the poor in the society. Now, 
those who came to take advantage of it had a choice. They could take enough to feed themselves, or they could take enough to feed themselves and their family, but also to invest in some way so that they can have their own field, their own business, and one day no longer have to go to the gleanings of someone else, but they become the owner and harvester of crops, and someone else can now eat from the gleaning from their field. So God put a system in place to make sure that everyone within society would be blessed, would be taken care of. But it takes people who have a moral compass in order for this to work. Because if there are people who are immoral or even amoral, then they're going to exploit the system. Let me show you how. Government has the power to make you do what they want. Did you hear that? There is something that we have in America, and you may have it here, in spite of the fact that America is a democracy, there is something called eminent domain, which simply means if you have a piece of property and government decides that they need that property, they can come and say, we need that property, you got to go. And they don't necessarily have to pay you for the actual value of that property. The government can force you to do things. That's true in any society, whether it's socialistic, democratic, democratic socialism, it doesn't matter. Government has the power to order you to do things. Got it? So if you have corruption in government, then you're going to find people using the power of government to exploit other people, to take advantage of and exploit those that are least of these, those that are vulnerable. In other words, it will be for personal enrichment and not the common good. The common good is what drives all of this, you see? And interestingly enough, in America, we in the West are a radical, individualistic society. It's all about me. But in the East, you tend to be what is called collectivist societies. In other words, your orientation is towards the community as a whole, as opposed to just the individual. So if there's a choice between the individual and the community, the individual must sacrifice for the sake of the community. That's a different orientation. And the Bible is not a Western book, it's an Eastern book. So the Bible leans towards your orientation, not ours. I'm just saying. So government can use its power to force. The for-profit sector also can use power, the power of manipulation. So if you have corrupt people in the business sector, they're going to use their power to manipulate the market, to manipulate prices, to manipulate 
uh, uh, supply, controlling supply and demand. Are you with me? All right? And they can exploit people for their own personal enrichment and fail to take care of the common good. So it is important that we have people in these sectors who have a moral compass. We need Christians in government. And I'm saying that not to change the government into Christian, but to bring our values, our morality, our sense of responsibility for the spiritual, moral, and material welfare of all of society, our sense of responsibility and call of God for the common good. We need people in government. We need Christians with that kind of morality in the business sector. Amen? Making a lot of money, but also understanding that they have a responsibility for the common good. The humanitarian or not-for-profit gets caught in the middle of those two powers because it needs the support of business. It needs the support of government in order for it to function. See? So you have to know how, or let's say this, you need to know what your mission field is. What are you called to? How has God designed you? How has God wired you? And where are you called to apply your gifts, talents, and abilities? Did you get anything out of that? Part two. So you have a mission field. You have a mission. You have a calling. You have gifts, talents, and abilities. And now you have the sectors within human society, all right, that you can now judge and say, okay, where is God calling upon my life? Is it, is it to, to government? Is it to the not-for-profit sector? Am I driven by humanitarianism? Or is it for the business sector? Do I have a knack for entrepreneurialism? All right? What's my calling? Because God wants you to be blessed. Remember the covenant with Abraham. He said, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. So it should never stop with you. God always wants to move it beyond you and to touch and bless the lives of others. Hallelujah. Now, let's talk about our relationship with the world as Christians, our relationship with culture, with society. And I'll give you three words. Embrace. Reject, change. Our relationships with society as Christians, three things. Say it with me. Embrace, Embrace. reject, reject, and change. change. Say it again. Embrace. 
reject, and change. So in our relationship with culture, in our relationship with society, all right, we embrace the good. Because everything in society is not bad. When Jesus came, all right, he affirmed some of the things that humans built. He affirmed the temple. He affirmed weddings and he affirmed other traditions, all right? He affirmed those things because they were not bad. Everything in society is, is not bad. Amen? I was on a television program being interviewed and I was asked about the human condition and its relationship to culture. And I said, it depends on where your theology begins. Either your theology begins with creation or your theology begins with the fall. Calvinism, coming out of much of the Reformation and Reformation theology and thinking, much of that theology begins with the fall. So if your theology begins with the fall, then your framework is based upon man's brokenness and woundedness. And then you build on that. But if your theology begins with creation, the image of God, the cultural mandate, man's responsibility, man's gifting by God over society in spite of his brokenness and woundedness, and he can merge above, emerge above that woundedness and brokenness, you're going to think differently about culture and your relationship with culture. You're going to see that man is redeemable. But if all you see is the fall, and that's the foundation for your theology, then you're going to think and see only human brokenness and human woundedness, not human potential. Where you start is important. So we embrace the good. Good knowledge, we embrace it. Good philosophies, we embrace it. Good values, we embrace it. Good ideas, we embrace it. Best practices, we embrace it. And we absorb them into our Christian way of living. Got it? Hallelujah. So we embrace the good, but we reject the bad. Bad knowledge, bad philosophies, bad values, bad ideas, worse practices. We reject those things. And that's why discernment is critical. Because discernment comes from, let's put it this way, wisdom is the ability to discern good from evil. That takes maturity, understanding, experience, knowledge, amen? Not only is wisdom the ability to discern good from evil, wisdom is also the 
courage to choose good over evil. Because some people can discern that something is evil, but they don't have the courage to reject it. So wisdom is the ability, the power to discern and the courage to choose good over evil. And that's where the study of scripture, your prayer life, enveloping yourself in Christian values, develops your ability to discern. The Bible is a book of patterns, principles, and precepts. As I was sharing in the last meeting, a precept is a law, it's a command that doesn't need interpretation. So a stop sign means stop, right? We don't stop, we kind of roll through it, we slow down, you know, but it means stop. That doesn't have to be explained or interpreted. But when you are on an on-ramp to a highway, you see a sign, in America it says yield, here it says give way, right? It doesn't tell you who to give way to. It doesn't tell you how much to give way. It doesn't tell you how long to give way. You have to make those judgments based upon your knowledge, your understanding, your experience, your wisdom. That is, the Bible has principles that require, they are broad and basic truths that require discernment, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And the more you use those principles, the better you get at your discernment, the better you get in making wise judgments, in determining good from evil. Amen? So as a Christian, we embrace the good. We reject the bad. Simple. And we have a set of values and a moral compass that help us determine what's good and what's bad. Because society may call evil good and good evil. Amen? The third thing, change what we can. You can't change everything. Only when Jesus comes back is everything going to change. But right now, we change what we can. We don't give up. We don't throw up our hands. No. We say, can I change that? And if I can't change that, then let me leave that. Amen? So it takes wisdom to know what you can change and what you can't. So we transform good knowledge and good ideas into something better and more powerful. I hope you what I just said. Remember, we embrace good ideas, we embrace good values, but we don't stop there. We are transformation agents. So we not only embrace good ideas and good values and best practices, we transform them into better ideas, better practices, because we have the creative spirit of God inside of us. Hallelujah. We improve on life. We improve on society. That is being salt and light. We build 
partnerships, networks, collaborations around the common good. We may disagree religiously, we may disagree on certain other issues, but can we find common ground? And if we can find common ground for the common good, then we can come together. Amen? So we build partnerships in society. We build networks. We build collaborations. So not-for-profits can work with government. They can work with the profit sector. Sometimes we can't work together because there is a disagreement in values. If one sector holds a value that is antithetic against our values, then we have to pass on that one. And we'll look for something else where there is a shared value. Amen? We don't have to criticize and condemn them to hell. No fire and brimstone sermons. We simply say, you know what? I'll pass on this one. All right? And we wait for the next opportunity that we can embrace. We are constantly discerning. So not only do we build partnerships and networks and collaborations, we also network our resources. If we have resources that we can bring to the table and work with resources that others bring to the table and come together for the common good, we Christians, we do that. Christian organizations, we do that. And we believe in collectively addressing social issues. So if there's a social issue that is affecting all of us, we can come together, find common ground, and for the common good, we can work together and build relationships. The Christian church had to come to these conclusions over time. Why? Because the early church had an apocalyptic vision. They were simply waiting for Jesus to come back. And they thought that Jesus was going to return immediately. He didn't show up. It was like when I got saved, I went into the Pentecostal church. And in the Pentecostal church that I was in, they told me Jesus was coming soon. They never qualified or defined soon, but they made it seem like it was in two weeks. It's been 45 years. But that's the apocalyptic vision that was driving them. And it's the same vision that drove the early church. But after a couple hundred years went by, they realized Jesus may not be coming back too soon. So we need to now determine how are we going to live in this society? How are we going to relate to unbelievers? How are we going to relate to other religions in the Roman culture? How are we going to do business? How are we going to build homes, establish our families? They had to begin to think differently. Unfortunately, there are some Christians who are still waiting and separated themselves from society, essentially isolating themselves because they're waiting for Jesus to come. See? And meanwhile, they do nothing. And then they look forward to going to heaven and for Jesus to say, well... There's no done. They done done nothing. 
As Christians, we understand that the secular world tries to bifurcate society. So they say, science is here, faith is here, and the two have no business together. Wrong. Science would have nothing to observe or experiment on if it wasn't for our faith that created it all. In the beginning, God created. So now, that creation gave science something to investigate, something to explore, something to observe, something to experiment with. There's no separation. We understand. So let me give you some thoughts. Philosophy deepens our belief in God. We don't reject philosophy. Philosophy has to do with human reasoning, rationalization, a process of thought that leads to conclusions. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1. Oh, wait a minute. What time is it? Are we out of time? We keep going? Okay. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, verse 18, he said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all iniquity and humanity. He says in verse 19, for the invisible things of God can be clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal God head. So they, humanity, is without excuse. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, through philosophy, through the light of the natural light of human reason, man can come to a conclusion that there's a God. We can look at motion, gradation, causation, we can look at, I don't have the time to unpack all of that, but these are reasonings for the existence of God. Causation simply says that everything has a cause. We live, we live in a cause and effect universe, amen? Everything has a cause. So if we trace all of the causes back, there has to be a first cause. Right? And whatever that first cause is, has to be a causeless cause. Nothing can cause it. In the beginning, God is the first cause. We believe that God is the first cause of everything in the universe. Because even the Big Bang had to have a cause. Amen? That's deep. It's profound. 
but God is the first cause. And then he created human beings and gave them the power and potential to exercise free will and thereby becoming a second cause. So humans, through our choices, we become a second cause. But our choices that become a second cause cannot negate the first cause. In him we live and move and have our being. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. By him all things consist. Amen. Amen. So we can, through the natural light of human reason, come to conclusions about the existence of God. So philosophy deepens our belief in God. We're not afraid of philosophy. Amen? Bring it on. Bring it on. Because even the philosopher can't know if it wasn't for God. We couldn't know anything. The only reason we know is because God knows. The only reason a computer can compute is because of the information put into it. So without someone to put that information, as amazing as a computer is, it cannot function because it cannot create knowledge on its own. We cannot create knowledge on our own. Our knowledge comes because God has knowledge. So philosophy deepens our belief in God. History sensitizes us to the providence of God. Providence is God guiding, providing for, and sustaining all of creation and being in control of human history. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel said, God sets up kings, he removes kings. He is in charge of the course of world history. He changes times, he changes seasons. Amen? That's God. So history simply sensitizes us to the providence of God, his divine hand. Science inspires awe of God. Literature expands the spirit, and art stimulates feeling. There is no incompatibility with these things, because all things come from God. I'm going to try that one more time. All things come from God. Hallelujah! There would be nothing for man to think about if it wasn't for God. There would be nothing for man to study if it wasn't for God. There would be nothing for man to feel if it wasn't for God. There'd be nothing for man to paint if it wasn't for God. There'd be nothing for man to sculpt if it wasn't for God. There was nothing for man to create if it wasn't for God. He is the source of all knowledge, all wisdom, all philosophy, all science, all understanding. 
all creativity. God is the source of it all. So we can function in this world and be very comfortable with human society. Because although they say we don't match up, we know that we do match up. Because we know the source of everything that they experienced. It all came from God. Did you get anything out of that tonight? We're called, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow night, so I can't, I can't say that. I can't say that either. Oh, well, let's all stand. If you were blessed tonight, if the quality of your thinking was changed tonight, I want you to give God a good praise offering. Come on, give him a good praise offering. Hallelujah! I want you to be dangerous to the devil. Because the people who know their God, they're going to do great things. I want you to know your God. I want you to have the language to have that debate, to have that conversation, to have that discussion, to tell those who don't believe, bring it on. When they say, you Christians don't believe in philosophy, yes we do. Come on, let's reason together. I want you equipped. Because the 21st century needs a generation of believers who know their God, who can think, and who can articulate their faith that shuts the mouths of those who don't know God. And it's amazing how many people are talking about God who don't know him. We know him. Amen. How many know the Lord Jesus Christ? Hallelujah. We are his representatives in the earth. We are his ambassadors. He called us and filled us with his Holy Spirit, equipped us with gifts, talents, and abilities and then sent us out into the world. Know your mission field, know your mission. Know your calling, your purpose, your role. Know your equipment. And then go out and make a difference in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Father, I thank you for your anointing in this place tonight. Thank you for all that our, our hearts have learned, our hearts have burned in your presence of your word. Touch us deeply. 
Show us how to use this information and bring glory to your name, to your kingdom, and make a difference in this world. We thank you and bless you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Come on one more time. Give God a good praise and a hand clap. Are you blessed by this week's podcast? Tell us at connect at chc.org.sg.